Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? I want to launch a petition to change Tuesday forever to be known as Shocker Day. <laughs> Shocker Day because... You're going to have to elaborate on that. Well, we'll talk about uh, the shock in the AFCON later on in the podcast, but we can also talk about the shot of St. Pauli knocking out the defending DFB Pokal champions, Borussia Dortmund, yeah. in a, I mean, a quite stunning victory. I know St. Pauli are much better than they have been in previous years, and they're probably going to be in the Bundesliga next season, but big shock, and now none of the big, big quote-unquote two in Germany are left in the... DFB Pokal. It's been a good, uh, what's it been, about a month and a half for Ian Joy? Huge, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure his joy, don't say it, JJ, leave the joy. Oh, come on, take it. It's right there. Well, you know what? Uh, Pauli might be uh, going up to a new division next year, but we know <laughs> it's already a joy division. <sighs> what a show. Wow. What a show we have coming up for you here on this podcast Tonight, uh, lots to get to. You mentioned uh, Borussia Dortmund. We will be talking a little bit later on in the podcast about one of their players who hasn't played in quite a while for both Borussia Dortmund or the U.S. men's national team. When will he be back? We'll talk about Gio Reyna. Uh, Lots of stuff to get to. The North London derby that didn't happen. Uh, Chelsea Man City over the weekend and then Chelsea in action again today. Neither result being one that Chelsea desired and their title race has come to an end. Uh, so there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about on this podcast. A nice mailbag, too. Lots of our uh, our listeners to this podcast are getting very goal-centric. I think they are they seem to be curious about our views of different kinds of goals, our favorite goals, which I love that topic. But we, do, great. we do get technical on the goals we like. We always say that a long... Uh, you know, a long effort or a, a volley is is heightened when it hits the post or the underside of the crossbar. Yeah, aesthetics matter. Yeah, to us hugely. And yeah. and there'll even be some pitch talk later on <laughs> in the show. <laughs> Believe me, uh, there's no point saying that a off-air argument is not going to spill on air. I'm sure it will when we get to our Africa Cup of Nations segment. Correct. Um, yeah, an off-air argument will make its way on the air, I'm sure, because you've you've just lost your mind. You've gone haywire. You could say I've been pitching about it all evening. No. Also, JJ, uh, while we're talking about we're talking about the mailbag a little bit, and you know, people obviously any number of ways to get in touch with us: Twitter, Instagram, email. Um, but also, I I hadn't ventured into the animal cage in quite some time, but I did into the Reddit page, which I, I should give a shout out to them because it's still going strong, and. I love it. It's just such a fun space of people talking about the show. But I noticed they they conducted a small poll about how you prefer players to wear their socks after I had made a big fuss over uh, Jack Grealish and how I just don't I don't like it. Surprising results. I yeah, thought. I don't like the low the low socks. And from the poll that they conducted, the people agree it's close. But I was a little surprised. I thought that I'd be in the minority on that one, but apparently not. People like high socks, so there no, you go. No, they're all conformists like you. They they like how's that conformist? Wearing the socks pulled up as they were meant. But to it's be. not the cool like, con- like if I wanted to be conformist, I'd probably want to be like the cool guy. Like oh, cool people wear them low. Like it's you know. But you're right, actually. That's the opposite of conformist because most guys don't do that. So remember how uh, Thierry Henry in the mid 2000s turned it into almost women's lingerie. Where he made them like the long socks. They went up under his shorts. Mm-hmm. 
That was I didn't enjoy that. I still do that though, especially when it's cold out. You see a little more of that. Yeah, but I wonder what the. I, I'm sure it wasn't just cold. There was some kind of. I don't know. Yeah, interesting. There could be no way of knowing. But JJ, we start. We start in Liverpool, but not the red half of Liverpool. We start on the blue side. <sighs> it's been a rough few months for Everton and Evertonians. Um, they were not thrilled with the managerial appointment prior to the season. It got off to a good start. It then spiraled quickly, and it always felt over the last month or so like it was heading towards what what seemed to be an inevitable conclusion. And I think that conclusion was, I mean, quite obviously (laughs) accelerated to warp speed when they lost to Norwich City Mm. over the weekend, a team that we have spent weeks just deriding and saying that this is this this Norwich City side looked like they were heading for the territory of being one of the worst Premier League teams we had ever seen. And then they beat Everton. And Everton have now been dragged into a, what you'd have to say, I don't think they're getting relegated, but they've been dragged into that race. What are they, only six points clear? I, I, I think their their main hope right now is that there are teams that are much worse below them, and there right. probably are. But at the same time, you cannot deny they're in the conversation. And so with that, Rafa Benitez is gone as manager of Everton. And so we're going to talk with Greg O'Keefe of The Athletic in literally like two minutes or so. He's standing by. But before we go to him, we we may as well just get our thoughts out there quickly and address the question that we always address when a manager gets fired. Was it fair? Uh, Fair. Fair, I I think when it gets that toxic, fair doesn't come into it. it. It had gone too far. You had a fan on the field remonstrating, trying to get to Benitez to let him know how bad... The situation had got it. It had. It had in got, case he wasn't aware, he needed that. You always need that. Remember yeah. Steve McLaren, the fan, got his season ticket. He ran down to the dugout and performatively ripped it up. Well, not performatively, actually ripped it up <laughs> in front of Steve McLaren. Um, so it got it, it, things had got so toxic, Andrew. They really had, and and the fans had completely turned on him. Uh, you know the FA Cup debacle, going one nil down inside two minutes, inside a minute actually against Hull. It had been building and building. And the record, the, the games, what is it, like nine defeats in 13? Just, it, it became untenable. And I know what you mean by fair. If if I'm being honest, fair, no. You can't give a manager that length of time and then allegedly not back him when he's asked for the things he's needed to in this January window, which was one of the reports we saw that Moshiri wasn't going to give him any more money, not in this window. Mm-hmm. Um, but... What has that got to do with anything? Because well, also injuries. They've been one of the most injury-hit clubs in the right. league so far this season, which is saying something because a lot of clubs have been ravaged. But the problem with that argument, though, is you know, I know chemistry, there's issues, and Andros Townsend has been trying to play through an injury and, and you know all that. But like that argument kind of goes out the window when you lose to Narch City. That's the point. Sometimes events just take their own course. And if you lose to Narch who up until the weekend did not look like... I mean, they'd actually put in some decent performances, but we're still getting beaten. This was this couldn't happen. It did happen. Things reached a critical mass. And fair or not, he was going to go. Now, you can argue on the other point is, well, you have nobody to replace him. You haven't a thought in your head. Not only that, you've gutted your entire staff, apart from uh, Duncan Ferguson, Alan Kelly, and a couple of others. You've gutted the staff. So you've Rafa was all that was left, and he's the last to go. 
Um, I don't think they're going to find a, a permanent manager situation until the season ends. Honestly, if they if they wanted to sit here, and I know it, it's possibly it's potentially taking a risk because, like we said, they're kind of in a relegation fight, so you don't want to just throw anyone in there. These games matter for them. But if they said that they were going to go with Duncan Ferguson for the remainder of the season and then address the manager position once they got to you know May or June, uh, I wouldn't really. I don't think I would take issue with that. I don't think so because I think they've run through the gamut of potential managers. Well, that's the thing, and we'll talk to Greg about that. But you know, at a certain point, okay, Everton fans are going to blame. You know, Rafa's going to take a lot of blame for this. He's going to have to wear this. What happened here? Um, okay, but like, what have Everton really been? Over the last decade, certainly post Moyes, they, the, I mean, like the so, shoots of a regeneration were there in the first season under Martinez. How did that end? I mean, we're it talking, ended bad, very badly. And, and, and these are managers like Roberto Martinez has gone on and become a successful manager at Belgium. Carlo Ancelotti, who couldn't do really anything at Everton, has left and was brought in by Real Madrid and is going to win another league title. Um, Koeman didn't work out. Silva didn't work out. Like, Allardyce didn't work out. At a certain point, you like you can only blame the manager so many times. If the thing keeps repeating itself over and over again, it, it can't only be that. There have to be bigger problems at this club than simply who they're hiring. No, they, but 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 the fact but the fact that they've kept hiring, like they've never had a unifying vision. So they brought in. Uh, I forgive me. I forget his first name. Walsh who was at Leicester City. Steve Walsh, Steve Walsh. Big fanfare. He was going to direct their recruitment. And that was going to be the way going forward. That didn't work out. Marcel Brands comes in sometime later. You know, he was going to set the vision. That didn't happen. You know, and in between you have this, like I said before, Frankenstein's monster of a recruitment policy. And there's now, I believe, players from six different managers in that first team squad. I thought I even read seven. Oh my god! Like, Either way, this is a this is you know it, it sounds like very and I hate to reference Liverpool in this, but I will. It's and, and I'll reference Manchester City while I'm at it. You hate talking about grandiose things like unifying visions in a game that's so transient, like football changes on a dime. Last you know, winning, losing, it can all change in ninety minutes. But there, sometimes you have to have that unifying long term vision set in place. Like Graham Potter apparently is, won't talk to Everton, has no interest in going to Everton, even though that is a logical, quote-unquote, step up for him from Brighton. But he won't because he's got the structures and built everything there. And what would he be walking into at Everton? I mean, he didn't want to go to Tottenham, reportedly. Well, so and, and, and I'm not saying they're the same, but, you know, what is your plan? What is your long-term view for the club? Everton's has... Been lost since David Moyes left. We always talk about the post-Fergie era at United. There's a post-Moyes era at Everton where whatever structures they had, whatever identity and and uh, DNA they had, again, I hate using these terms, but they're applicable, that's all gone. All gone. And now they are lost at sea. They really are. Let's talk more about it right, uh, right now. Like I said, Greg O'Keefe covers Everton for the Athletic. He's gone deep on this, certainly. It's been a busy time for him, and Greg is kind enough to carve out a little bit of time for us. He joins Caught Offside right now. Greg, what's up, man? How are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice to be on, nice to be on the podcast, gents. Yeah, thanks for joining us in what is, uh, what is surely a busy time. So in looking at Everton, the managerial situation, I guess let's go back a little bit. Earlier the season, 14 points from the first seven games. Not, not bad. It was, I'd say, a good start. We were feeling decent about them at the time. What happened? 
I mean, I think any sort of reasonable assessment of Rafa's reign has to reflect that, as you said there, Andrew, they had that good start and they looked impressive, particularly Old Trafford when they got the draw at United and then injuries kicked in. Some really bad injuries to key people. Dominic Calvert-Lewin was missing since the win over Brighton in August. He only came back last week against Brighton, funnily enough. Um, they've variously been missing Decore, a key element of his midfield, who was scoring goals early on. Richarlison, so Yerry Mina, one of the better centre-backs. So big, big, big injuries. But then, as well as that, Benitez, his reputation as a coach who tactically excels, I feel has, has taken a bit of a battering here because there were some issues. And I know he only had a, a relatively brief period of time, which was beyond his control. But some issues he was just unable to touch the sides of, like Everton's abject defending from set pieces and just the midfield woes. And then basically compounding it with irrational errors that just seemed, you know, like playing a 30 plus year old right back whose legs are appearing to go in Seamus Coleman as left wing back against Brighton. Um, Salomon Rondon persevering with him in a variety of unsuited roles. So it was a bit of a perfect storm. And of course, the soundtrack to all that was a fan base that never loved him in the first place. It's not like they were falling out of love, but they were getting increasingly voluble with their just disdain and anger at his period. And, and you know, you can factor in the freezing out of a popular player in Luca Dean. And it was just a perfect storm. I mean, it was always destined to end badly. And I think the only people who didn't think it would from the offset were Benitez and Fahad Mishiri. Is, is this the weirdest? When, when we look at it now, and on this podcast, we said some naive things when, when Rafa was, was appointed. And I said the one thing that at least Everton would be organized. And for a little bit, they were. And then it went out the window completely. Uh, but when you look at it now, you take a step back. Is this the, the craziest decision to appoint Rafa Benitez as manager of Everton. Is this the craziest decision of the Mashiri reign, would you say? I mean, there have been a few crazy decisions, to be fair, JJ. And I would say it's like trying to review history at the time. You know, yeah, I would say my hunch is that it will be the one of the craziest decisions because you've got to read the room and you've got to take heed to the fans. Um and again, it might not be that the, the owner's doing that with his, we'll talk about, you know, who comes next. And if Roberto Martinez ends up, it's looking implausible. If he ends up as Everton manager again, then that would prove that the crazy decisions just keep on coming. Mm. But sure, it, a, a very, very odd decision. And then compounded by decisions to let the director of football go, someone who Rafa wasn't particularly working with very well. So although that wasn't at Rafa's behest, Marcel Brands leaving was partly giving Rafa more control. Then you allow him to sell Luca Dean to one of your direct rivals in the table. And then a few days after you do that, you sack Rafa. Staggering. Yeah, it is staggering. It, it makes no sense. And what's, what's strange to me is like this is the, the owner hasn't been afraid to, I mean, hasn't been afraid, has been very free with his money. Do you, do you see sure. that continuing? They're like 500 million since 2016. Do you see that continuing, Greg? I, I mean, you, yeah, yeah, I do. And you have to, you kind of have to balance up your 
very reasonable criticism of, of Mashiri. The advice he takes, his meddling, some of the managerial appointments. You can't criticise him for Carlo Ancelotti, you know, per se. Ancelotti decided to walk out on the job. but and However, he wasn't doing particularly well when he left either. Um, but you've also got to weigh that up with the, with the, fa- the fantastic commitment and ambition and generosity he, he's shown. Mm. And not just on the pitch, you know, he's building a stadium about, you know, a mile and a half from where I live in Liverpool City Centre. He's building a stadium on the, on, on the riverfront there, which is something Everton have never managed to get off the ground. A project that they've stalled four or five times until Mashiri came along. But unfortunately, as an owner and administrator, he just seems to be repeating the same mistakes. And I feel he listens too much to agents who are in his orbit, who've got something to gain from providing him with certain advice. And um, I just, it gets very frustrating, but it, it, it's Everton fans are conflicted over this because they know in one sense, this is the owner that brought them the financial wherewithal to compete. And at the same token, the owner with that financial wherewithal who's seen them go further backwards and compete less. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it really is a difficult situation. And, you know, you've got to just hope that finally they get it right in terms of the next step, whether that's to go and appoint another manager or to take a pause, have an interim set up until the summer and complete the structural review of the club, which, by the way, was started after Brands left. And I think it's important to get right more than whoever is the coach. Decide what type of club you want to be on the pitch. What's your style of football going to be? Are you going to make sure the academy plays in that way? Are you going to make sure the recruitment falls into that line? Are you going to have a sporting director who oversees all that and is allowed to do that without any interference from the owner? Is he going to be involved? In fact, is he going to be tasked with appointing the head coach or the manager? Because there's just so many question marks. That wasn't the case with Marcel Brands. And if you're going to be a serious football club that does things in that systemic fashion, you need to do it the right way around. But Everton at the moment aren't a serious football club. Greg, when you were talking about what went wrong, essentially, with this Rafa Benitez era, as short as it was, there were two things you mentioned which are interesting to me. Obviously, the injuries were huge. These are big names. These are important players for Everton. And Rafa mentioned it in his statement as as being a key reason as to why this didn't work. You also mentioned the fans not really being on board with this in the first place. Those two things kind of clash with one another. Uh, Was this move made because Rafa genuinely deserved to go, or was this move made more because they were kind of looking to appease a fan base that was just mad about this appointment to begin with? It's a good question. I, I think, I don't think the move was made to appease the fan base. I think if that had been Mishiri's concern, he wouldn't have made the move in the first place. You'll never, you'll never condone the more extreme things that some football fans do. But you, you'll remember that guys, some people were, were, were painting bed sheets with threats to Rafa and going and sticking them near where he lives, mm-hmm. you know, for crying out loud before his appointment. Ter- terrible. That was an extreme example, but it was clear that the fan base almost to, almost to a, you know, a man and a woman, 90% were against his opposition. So, sorry, against his appointment. And then I think what's really swung Mishiri at this stage, and I, I referred to the stadium before, I think it got real for him on Saturday evening that Everton are right in the mix of a potential relegation fight here. Losing to Norwich, who've been pretty poor this season, let's be honest, and losing in the way they did 
dropping to within six points of 18th. I think he suddenly realised he's trying to build a stadium. It's going to cost him half a million pounds. And you might be factoring in possibly championship football next season. It would have had very wide-ranging consequences. And I think he felt, given the the defeat at Brighton and Rafa's own potential role in that with his mistakes tactically, the defeat, you know, he started Richarlison on the bench. Richarlison's one of the better players. He starts on the bench at Norwich for Solomon Rondon. That's that smacked a bit of classic Benitez stubbornness to many. And I think something had to give. And in the end, that was probably why. You could still argue the toss that that was too soon and he should have waited and, you know, assess whether Rafa could turn it round. But then football's very unforgiving, the fixture list even more so. And guess who's in town next up for Everton? Aston Villa, Stephen Gerrard and Luca Dean in front of your own fans. Rafa being in charge and Everton losing that game. I mean, I'm going to be there on Saturday and let me tell you, that would have been a hostile atmosphere. So maybe it was for the best for everyone at this stage that a decision was made quickly. The case for keeping Benitez in my mind, Greg, and I'm, I'm interested to see what you say on this. The case for keeping him was, where do you go next? And some of the names that we've been seeing, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the names we've been seeing, like Frank Lampard this morning, uh, trying to get back and get Roberto Martinez. Um, you know, the manager profile for the next manager, I'm, I, I've been very, very... I don't know where Everton go. So the younger managers, the Marco Silvas um, and the Roberto Martinez in the first term, young, thoughtful managers didn't work out. Uh, The kind of manager like Ronald Koeman, who built up a decent CV across a few clubs, didn't work out. You go back then to a fixer, Sam Allardyce, was never going to work out. Carlo Ancelotti, with all his, with his unbelievable resume, Next time that a big club came in, he was going to go. So I'm curious, like, what do Everton do now? Where do they go? Is an appointment from within plausible? And also, is an appointment from within, you know, less risky than, than keeping Rafa on to keep them in the, in the division? Um, that is, is the absolute fundamental question that even the most opinionated football fan on Merseyside is at the moment holding their hands up, most of them and saying, I don't frankly know. I don't know yeah. where you go next because you've just listed the amount, the categories of different stripes of managers that Everton have tried and failed with. And, you know, it's not all on those as individual coaches. No. Like I said, I said earlier, the the hierarchy and the structure that Everton or the lack of structure that Everton has run with makes the job 10 times harder. But for what it's worth, I don't feel going to a younger manager like Wayne Rooney is the answer. I think he, he's he's got all the makings of a, a fantastic manager and he's done brilliantly at Derby. But I fear that Everton would chew him up and spit him out. Yeah. I don't think Frank Lampard would get much. I don't think he's shown. He did. He did decently at Chelsea under trying circumstances, maybe. So, you know, maybe maybe he is suitable to an extent. But it doesn't ring right for me, Frank Lampard, that he could come in and and he hasn't got the same. He's not going to have that buy-in from the fans like he did at Chelsea. He's not an Everton hero. Not an Everton legend. And frankly, from what we're heard, frankly, from what we've heard. He, he hasn't pulled up trees in interviews for other jobs that have flown around at the moment. He seems to just be your standard. He's out of work. Let's throw him in the hat. Yeah. There's a shout for Duncan Ferguson, who came in before Ancelotti as interim manager, managed four games, big win over Chelsea, draw at Old Trafford, got a draw with Arsenal, and you know, a, 
went out on penalties in the in the League Cup quarter final against Leicester. Maybe he's the answer until the summer. Then again, that's a risk as well. Everything's a risk, isn't it? But that's a risk that he's got the experience beyond four or so games to keep a run going when it's going to be based on properly passion and running harder than the opposition. And will he be able to repeat that trick? He's he's internal, and you wouldn't be committing to anything in terms of contract or or a backroom staff. He would arguably do that with people who are, are around his his unit now. So Leighton Baines. You know, Alan Kelly, the goalkeeping coach, people who haven't left with Rafa. So that would certainly be a, a, a lower risk appointment to some extent. And like I said, you could then do it properly. You could appoint a sporting director if you want to yeah. before you then address who the next manager is going to be in the summer when there might be more potential candidates available. Greg O'Keefe of The Athletic joining us here on Caught Offside. Uh, Greg, there was something in Rafa's parting statement that I read that felt really ominous to me just as a a standalone sentence. He said, it's only when you're inside that you realize the magnitude of the task. Now, this is a question I suppose only he can really answer, but if you were trying to channel Rafa, what is it exactly he's referring to? What do you make of of such an ominous phrase as that? Yeah, it was an interesting line that, wasn't it? I think that Rafa feels that, um, I feel he's referring to the ownership. I feel that that was a, a dig at Mashiri, the feeling that Mashiri is too easily swayed by agents, by agents of current players, listening to too many people um, and interfering too much. I think Rafa, from what I understand, feels that he wasn't given the the full skinny on Everton's financial peril with regards to fair play when he, he came in the summer. I think he feels that they told him to an extent there were going to be issues, but not the extent of those issues and quite how hands, how tightly his hands would be tied when it came to spending. And so I think that probably lies behind the sort of cryptic and slightly ominous, as you say, Andrew, statement that he said there. I think he felt like he was uh, went into that job, which was always going to be tough anyway, with one hand tied behind his back. Uh, Greg, I don't think you're old enough to have a real... Uh, very, uh, maybe you are, uh, a very clear view of the relegation battles in uh, 93, 94 and 97, 98 for Everton, where it, it came down almost to the last day in both cases and there was some drama uh, and, and things needed to happen to go their way for them to stay up. Um, does does this, again, I'm asking you, you were probably, you're probably the same age as me, so it's not maybe the clearest memories. Does it feel like any of those seasons? I do remember them, um, not in a professional capacity, but I, I remember them. Uh, remember what it was like in the city, what it was like supporting Everton at the time. Yeah. How it was always, you know, a case of Everton. Then were defined by a club that took pride in staying up, in existing within their means, in having these dramatic last gasp survivals, particularly the one in the one you mentioned, '93, with the three-two win over Wimbledon. We're not there yet this season. We've clearly got a lot better players than we had then mm. um, and shouldn't be in this position. But so many clubs that are down that end of the season come May would argue that they're too good to go down and they go down. So I think it did get real on Saturday. I think the buffer has gone between, you know, they could talk about games in hand and they still do have a couple of games in hand on some sides. But the way that they were playing under Rafa, the mistakes that were being made, 
by the players as well as him in terms of selection, it, it all feeds into a pretty serious picture at the moment. Is it at that stage yet where we're talking about great escapes and needing to go to, to the wire? I don't think so. But that could change. I mean, there's absolutely no guarantee that whoever comes in will be able to address this rot immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever comes in is probably not going to have to find to add, add their own personnel in January in terms of transfers. They're going to have to work with the players that they've got. And that, look, there's some great players, aren't there? JJ, yeah. look, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. You know, Richarlison, Decore is really good. The goalkeeper's good. You know, they've brought in two new, young, exciting fullbacks, Mikalenko and Nathan Patterson, very one of the best highly rated young talents in Scotland. But that's going to, you, you know, they're going to need time. Maybe Ferguson makes sense because he knows, he's been there, he knows, and he's not going to need time to adjust to the players, but... We're going to have to see what the owner thinks on that because ultimately you can bet your bottom dollar it's him who's going to be calling the shots. Greg, last one from me. You know, we have a lot of Everton supporters that listen to this podcast. And when we come in to pretty much every season, you know, there's, you know, even when, when things don't necessarily look great, even on paper, there's, a, there's always the sentiment that I get from Everton support that they believe they should be contending at least for a European place, if not Champions League, certainly Europa League. That seems to be their expectation every year. And now here we are, they're contending really to stay up this season. They haven't really been a part of any Champions League campaign or race the last decade or, or more. Who are they as a club right now? What, what is the expectation that Everton support should have? If there are supporters out there that come into each season thinking we should be in that Champions League race, is it time that they kind of erase that from their mind until this club gets right in a, in a different way than what we've seen? Yeah, yeah, you know, you... It's probably a, a question that a lot of neutrals would ask and an observation that a lot of neutrals would make about Evertonians. And look, I, I am an Evertonian as well as somebody who covers the football club, you know, card carrying, you know, got, make, making the bones about that. And football fans are as bad as any sports fans, soccer fans for delusions of grandeur. And it comes down to what Everton fans think about. Everton is one of the biggest, most storied and historically successful clubs in the Premier League. So, sorry, in, in English football. But in the Premier League, they're a different story. And I think too often fans are getting carried away with the promises and the lure of the, the Mashiri era that they could finally go and wake that giant and compete with the Man Cities, the Chelsea's, the Liverpool's. And in fact, they're looking at now as their most successful Premier League spell under David Moyes and, and, and Bill Kenwright as chairman when they hardly had any money and they got by on being pound for pound the best outside the top four and spending very wisely and competing on a limited budget. Yeah, maybe a reset on expectation is required. But the problem is that Evertonians are so frustrated by 27 years without a trophy and so many false dawns and their owner's ambition has kind of kind of fed into the problem because there's a guy who's saying... I'm here, I'm going to spend the money. And he has spent the money. Mm. And I'm going to help and try and get you back to where you belong. He said at his first gen- annual general meeting, Monsieur, he said, I'm not here to let this club become a museum. You know, past glories. We want to move forward. We want to win things. So they believed him and they believe him. But since then, so much money has been wasted. And yet, this they have this huge fan base. They have the sellout stadium every, every other week. They have this remarkable travelling support that go everywhere, no matter how badly the results are going. 
and they've got all the ingredients for it to be a club that should be pushing on the Champions League and trying to qualify. But yet they're not. And I think maybe they need to realise that you, not many clubs get to be City now or, Beck, or Chelsea or Liverpool. Unfortunately, the door's closed and, and financial fair play and the Premier League's own profit sustainability rules mean that they don't want anyone else joining that elite. You can't spend your way into it. Everton have tried and found that because they've done it poorly, they're now locked out because they are they couldn't spend under Rafa and they couldn't spend a lot under Carlo Ancelotti because they had to make sure they were within these fair play rules because they'd wasted so much. So the show, the drawbridge has, has come down. So what's the way to do it? Maybe it's taking a step back to come forward to developing players with a view of selling them on at a profit and, and having a really shrewd recruitment team and trying to do a Leicester or trying to be a you know a Red Bull and trying to make incremental progress that way rather than going buying James Rodriguez or trying to be linked with Philippe Coutinho, players on the way down. You see Everton as a decline towards the retirement. Maybe you have to change the entire view of what the club is going to be in the short term in order to be successful. This feels, I hate to end on a down note, but this sometimes when you get rid of a manager, there's almost a hopefulness. Okay, like you said, a reset. This feels dark right now for Everton. <laughs> it, does. It, it kind of does. It does, yeah. It, it, it's a, because I, I think it's because you're right. I was speaking to a friend of mine about this, and there is normally this kind of release attention that leads to, if not quite a euphoria, it, it, it's, a, it's a, well, we can believe that things can change here, that we can go again, that the next manager is going to come in. But because it's happened so often for Everton, because they're looking for their sixth manager in as many years, the Evertonians and football in general observing this circus are saying, this is happening way too often. Um, this is a crisis club and there's no guarantee they'll get it right again. And then you're looking at the candidates that are getting linked and nothing feels quite right. Every option is fraught. And frankly, without being dramatic, I agree with you. It's uh, There's quite a, a dour and quite a, an alarming feel about Everton at the moment. And, you know, sometimes things can change quickly. You know, they could get results on Saturday under Duncan Ferguson or whoever, and then begin on the up and be looking forward to finishing a decent finish this season. They're still in the FA Cup. Yeah. Football can change quickly. But at the moment, yeah, there's a lot of despondency and, and serious concern for what might come next. Well, good stuff, man. I hope they get it right. They've got tremendous support who certainly deserve a club that is, quite frankly, better than what this club has been for them over the last decade or so. Greg, I know you're busy. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Speak to you soon. Our thanks to Greg O'Keefe. Bleak. It's bleak it's, for them. It's very bleak. I know you have a question for me, Andrew, but I have one for you. Oh, okay. And it's just, and I'm spitballing here, and people are going to laugh at me. Is there anything to be said for, we talked before we talked to Greg about a, you know, a structure and a unifying vision. Is there, I know the stadium looms large, but park that. If they did go down, this total reset that would be launched in the club you know it would clear the decks everything would have to start anew and you would think that with the parachute payments and the sheer size of the club that they'd do in Newcastle and come straight back up mm -hmm. would, is there anything positive to be said for going down no 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 
Strong no. Right. Very strong no. Okay. I mean, Money wise would be a disaster. I understand that it would throw the future. You can say, "Oh, they'll just do a Newcastle." You don't know that. No, I don't know that. But 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 I like they stay up. There's a danger this lurches on, and they just continue to be. That's this better than going down. Okay. Strong no. Stupid question, wasn't it? I mean, I think so, yeah. but there might there could be people who see it your way. We're uh, we're going to leave it in the podcast though. Because that's the kind of, of course. kind of bravery I show. How short would this podcast be if we edit out all of the stupid things I've said over the years? <laughs> yeah, true, true, uh, true. JJ, the question that, that I was going to ask you about Everton, it's funny. You know, we, we talk about this at length, you and I. Uh, we talked about it with Greg. Like, Everton are a historic club. Yes. There is prestige with that club. There is an expectation with that club. On the surface, like, Everton is a, is a, that's a coveted managerial position. But... Like to see it from afar and to hear Greg talk about you know everything wrong at the club right now, you talk, you mentioned Graham Potter. Is it a desirable managerial position? Because I just look at it, I think bad finances plus a mess of a squad like you talked about, plus high expectations, right. whether it be from ownership, whether it be from the fan base that is still kind of of the of a past mindset. I look at it and I think, I don't blame Graham Potter or any manager that says, uh-uh, steer clear, that is poison. I'm going to present the flip side to that because I, I tend to agree with what you're saying there. But if there is a strong personality who in some way can get Mashiri's ear and keep it and get full control of the club, like a Fergie in 86 at United, somebody like that. I mean, who is that person? I don't know. That's the point. But if there was... <laughs> that it would be desirable to them. But but all those top guys are, are are taken by clubs. But the problem is, like, Fergie in... He did not... Like, his start at Manchester United was not smooth sailing, No, but right? he was allowed to do everything. And okay, was, but that wouldn't happen here. He wouldn't get the time. Right. It's a different culture in sports in general, and certainly there. Just ask the last seven guys. <laughs> right. You know, like, it doesn't work that way. So even if I were somebody with that bullheaded of a mindset, I'd say, uh-uh, because they won't give me a chance to show what I can do. Let me go somewhere where, where they'll give me time and back me. I don't know. I don't know who's taking this job. They're going to dodge. It's got to be someone desperate. They're going to dodge the Mourinho bullet. Uh, there was rumors that uh, they, Everton had tried to approach him. Uh, Roma have said that he's not going anywhere. So <sighs> That would not. It, that would definitely not no, be the appointment. No. Good Lord. No, no. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't. It does not feel like the trajectory here is headed in the right direction, regardless of the managerial reset. No, I, I'm worried about. But that. but he could, Moshiri could pull a Daniel Levy. I mean, Daniel Levy lurched from manager to manager in the early part of his control of of Tottenham, and he stumbled on the right one. He was always a guy that was chasing the the new hot young thing, regardless of where it was. Kind of, although their greatest success. Before Pochettino was Harry Redknapp, which wasn't necessarily the the hot young thing. No, but came in like a almost like a fixer interim guy. But Pochettino was the guy he stole, and and the yeah. club was re, re. So maybe Mashiri again. I'm looking for an accident. That's but, an accident. But honestly, the Tottenham model is kind of the one that Everton, like Tottenham. You're sort of dancing around it, but I'll, I'll say it more bluntly. They kind of their current success, the current era that they're in. They kind of stumbled into it. Sure. Like I'm sure they they obviously liked Pochettino, but I don't know that they knew they were getting a guy who was going to completely change their history. But look what like Harry Kane was a a journeyman youth player 
who had been loaned out to any number of clubs, who had no expectation, he's become arguably a top three striker in the history of the club. Like Everton are going to have to stumble into it. Of course they are. And look how Tottenham have been since Potch. Stumbling around, flailing in the dark. And there is no silver bullet. There is no silver-haired Italian bullet for for Everton. That didn't work. Like we said to Greg. Yeah. Look at the profile they've gone through. Give it dunk till the end of the season and see what happens. Uh, JJ, let's continue now. A couple um, Over the, the past weekend... Uh, obviously, there were a couple big matches on the schedule. One happened, one didn't. Okay. Uh, let's start with Chelsea and Manchester City. I guess we'll start with Chelsea at large because they also played Brighton earlier today and drew 1-1. It has not been a good time for Chelsea. No. Um, Things are getting frayed. Yeah, they are. Uh, I-, I was going to mention something about Man City, but they're not really the story here. Kevin De Bruyne scored an unbelievable goal. You all saw it. He it almost felt like a miss hit that was perfect. The ball yeah. like got caught in his feet and he couldn't have hit it any better. It was incredible. The con- the con- before we get to Chelsea, the conversation around City is almost has been rotating around the Ken Early article where he basically said that the way they play is like they chloroformed Chelsea <laughs> to death, and that the way they play there was no emotion in it, and. Uh, generally speaking, that you know, Guardiola likes it that way. Guardiola doesn't want end to end. Guardiola wants like suffocation, and that that's not good, and it's not good to watch. And and that's the article that's been doing the the city forums and and going around the place. So if you get a chance to read that, read that. But hmm. I don't think there's anything new to say about. I don't know how mu- exactly how much I agree with that. I don't know that I'm bored when I watch Manchester City. I think I am, and I don't think I'm alone. <laughs> you know, it's it's like. <sighs> It's slow death. It's you. Know, you know what's coming, and right, well, it's one thing to know what, the outcome, but like, but I don't know yeah, that their that's style. Bad. But like, I'm talking about their style of play. I don't know that I'm that it's a boring brand of football. Well, he, so Tuchel was specifically, and this is what Ken says. Tuchel specifically was looking for the transitions in the game. You know, be passive and then boom, take them on the break. Whereas City was more like, as Guardiola said, a thousand million passes. <laughs> whatever phrase he used, and then right moment, kill him off. And that's not really fun. And also, another point, fallibility is such a big thing in football. But I'll let people read that article for okay. themselves. It's it's very it's it's good and it's um it's annoying Manchester City fans, which is also good because it's challenging them to think about the horrendous machine that they've sucked. Yeah, change what you're doing, Manchester City. It's only oh, work no. to absolute perfection. No, 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 no. There is no it's not incumbent on Manchester City to change. No. What they're doing is working very, very well. Uh, whether it's good is another debate. Okay. Uh, but no, Chelsea are, are probably more of the story right now as they've hit this weird bump in the road. And it seems like, and you could see this coming even before his interview with Sky Sports Italia was released, but you could start to see Romelu Lukaku sort of becoming the face of the Chelsea frustration. Um And their manager has not necessarily done a whole lot to douse that. No. Uh Post match to Des Kelly of BT, Des Kelly of BT asks, uh, "Did Romelu Lukaku get enough service?" A question along those lines, mm-hmm. and the response, well, Tuchel just runs with it. We had eight or nine offensive transitions, but had zero touches in the box. That was a big problem today. The performance of our front players, a lack of position, timing, and composure. We lost too many balls too easily. Romelu Lukaku sometimes needs to do the service. He is included in this. He had many ball losses in very promising circumstances. He had a huge chance. Of course we want to serve him, but he's part of the team. 
and the performance up front, we can do much better. And so that was post-match, right? Immediately post-match. Then Monday, I guess with that sort of as the backdrop, uh, Tuchel was asked if they maybe need to, something to the effect of if they need to change their tactical approach to get the best out of this player. And he doubles down. He says, we do everything to help him. I think this is absolutely the wrong question because it's focusing on one player. He's a key player, and we want him to be a key player. But for me, this is the wrong approach. This is what we do, by the way, by the way, anyway, constantly for any player. This is a team sport. It's not about 10 players serving one player. This is not Chelsea, and this is not football. Every player serving the team is the highest principle, and this will not change. Makes me wonder about something. We used to talk about this a lot, JJ, during the Mourinho years at Manchester United with regards to Paul Pogba. Mm. If you're going to bring in a player on a massive sum of money, (laughs) either he better fit your system or you better be willing to change in some way. Otherwise, it will be disastrous. Now, I don't think we're at a disastrous point yet with Romelu Lukaku. In fact, in a minute here, I'm going to suggest that maybe there's a little bit of an overreaction and people need to calm down slightly. But I will say the way the manager is handling this, we could be heading towards that sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, we've already had the earliest of early kind of explosions um, with with what Lukaku said in early December to Sky Italia. Look, it's it's more than that. It's more than Lukaku for me. The, the, the attack, the Chelsea attack, generally isn't functioning. It didn't tonight against Brighton either. Um, at the weekend... Pulisic was terrible. Ziyech was poor. Lukaku was ge- like genuinely bad. Mm-hmm. And but but the the overall plan for that game was to be passive, like I said, and and try and get City on the break. But for all the good things that Tuchel has done, and he has done a lot since he's come in, they're European champions. They wouldn't have been if Frank Lampard had remained at the helm. We can be confident in that. He's got them organised, but the hardest part is making these disparate pieces work. You know, not to sound like Harry Redknapp, has he got the best out of the Germans yet? No. Kai Havertz, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so he hasn't. And his general frustration to, and, and upset towards his players is uh, is manifesting here. And the other side to it is Lukaku hasn't worked out. I, I'm not sure that Lukaku was the signing I would have gone for. I can't be 100% certain that Tuchel wanted Lukaku. We don't know that. Um, it certainly doesn't seem like it. Well, it's interesting because you look at Chelsea's success last year in the Champions League, and you know a lot of it, it was not an attack-based approach. You know, they were tremendous defensively, and you know they, they won a lot of big matches against good opponents playing that way, uh, and their big-money signing at striker, Timo Werner, did not work out, and they still won a Champions League. And so you kind of looked at it and thought, okay, well, imagine if we did have somebody who worked out at that position, yeah. what we could be. Then we could be European champions and contend with Manchester City. And so they went and got the best one. That was available, that they right. could get. Um, but I, I don't think Tuchel knows what he really wants up front. I, I don't. And there's evidence to suggest with the changes he makes that he's still trying to find this formula and you know not that there's a comparison Frank Lampard couldn't find it either beforehand and what Tuchel did was come in and make them really stingy the hard part is creating that chemistry up front and he's got Mount Pulisic Ziyech 
um, Hudson Adoy, Lukaku, like attack minded players. So I think you just hit on it. I was reading Jonathan Wilson, who wrote about Lukaku and how it's been a problem. And you just used the word chemistry. Keep that word in the back of your mind. Jonathan Wilson points this out from uh, the City match. So we'll go back to the weekend. He's talking about Lukaku. He says, five of his 12 attempted passes failed to find a teammate. His one attempted dribble squandered possession. On the 42 occasions teammates attempted to find him with a pass, only 12 times did he claim possession. I look at that, JJ, and I think, okay, is this a disastrous signing, or is this a player who just right now lacks chemistry with those around him? He has nine Premier League starts so far, four Champions League starts. By the way, he has five goals in nine EPL starts and two goals in four Champions League starts. It's not an awful return. And he hasn't gotten very many minutes. You know, he was hurt. He had COVID. He hasn't really played with this group. There's been revolving doors of players around him. That's why I say maybe everyone take a deep breath. Romelu, don't do another interview that could be inflammatory. Tuchel, behind the scenes, handle this in a way that is going to settle nerves rather than going out in front of the media and inflaming the situation. This might just be an issue of chemistry. I don't know that. This will bear itself out over time. Maybe it'll never work. But, like... I just feel like we're jumping to conclusions and they're going to run this guy out of town and I don't know that it needs to be that way this early on in the process. And there's more than him that has yet to really gel into this Chelsea side in terms of an attacking outlet. That's fair. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. But it, is, it is very much a we'll see. Uh, there's another part of that uh, Jonathan Wilson piece which you read to me earlier which is about Italy. We do that. I JJ, he sits on my lap and I read to him. We have story time. We do. It's it's nice. It's yeah. very nice. You didn't make me my warm cocoa today, but that's okay. No, but you did bring a, a baby bottle of milk in with you. Yeah, I have to make tea here. I like tea. It calms me. It soothes me for the battle ahead with you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and it was about how, you know, Lukaku's comeback and his resurgence happened in, in Syria, where defenses are more forgiving. Running in behind and, and balls in behind will work and Lukaku will dominate and he will be a flat track bully. He point, Jonathan Wilson, he pointed out much the way our, our what was it, our listener that did last week referring to Syria as a retirement. No, it was, it was Gavin Cooney of the uh, the journalist at the 42. That's right. Um, Jonathan Wilson said this is a league you know where a 40-year-old Zlatan and a 35-year-old Eden Dzeko are still major threats. Yes. So... Uh, Maybe there's something to be said for that. There probably is, but at the same time, um, we we should we should wait this out before we make these um, grand proclamations on Lukaku and what he's going to be for the rest of his career. Yeah. One other one, JJ. Uh, as we move on, the game over the weekend that was um, supposed to finish off your weekend on Sunday, uh, we found out Saturday it wasn't going to happen. The North London derby, late. Uh, yeah. Obviously, look, it's a game that didn't happen, so there's not a ton to say about it. It's only the manner in which it didn't happen that I think is is jarring, and it's the only reason that I'm even bringing it up. Um, so let me just go through this quickly for anybody who, who hasn't kept up on it. Uh, Arsenal asked for the match to be postponed because they had, quote, this is from like their statement, essentially. They had, quote, many players unavailable across our squad as, as a result of COVID, comma, injuries, comma, and players away with their countries at AFCON. Am I missing something? Uh, aren't, aren't match postponements supposed to be COVID-related matters? Well, we They ne- have found a loophole, JJ, and they exploited it. 
They manipulated it. Gary Neville went on Twitter uh, after the announcement. He said, game off. What started out as a postponement due to a pandemic has now become about clubs not having their best team. The Premier League must stop this now, draw a line in the sand, and say all games go ahead unless you have an exceptional amount of COVID cases. It's wrong. Yeah, I I agree. Um, It is wrong. And Tottenham's statement afterwards was very strong, and it it talked about the key phrase in it was the unintended consequences of allowing uh, applications for for postponements. But it was, we said from the start, there's been no clarity on this. Exactly what are the reasons? Injury can't be a reason. Arsenal have one, one COVID case. Yeah, and then we find, and we, they got this match postponed. Look at Liverpool. Look at the whole debacle last week, where it turned out they had only one COVID positive, but they had a bunch of false negatives. And the first test that they did, where there was, they had all these positives, which weren't positives. That was the thing that went on, not the, the, the postponement went on, not the second or the third test. Liverpool should have played Arsenal last week. Yes, Arsenal should have played at the weekend against Tottenham. Yes. Do you know what's worse? that I discovered today I was listening to the Guardian football podcast and they were talking about because I've been banging on about the 23s why can't these under 23s play well it actually suits you in getting your game called off if you haven't blooded young players because there's it is not incumbent upon you to field under 23s in your senior team unless they have appropriate experience which means they've played a few minutes already in a Premier League game or a Senior Cup game so what they're doing is rewarding people or teams that don't play their youth players at all because that means they can, oh well we don't have appropriate we can we don't have the appropriately experienced under 23s. Now we'll get to Leeds later on who don't care about any of this and they deserve some kind of FIFA fair play award because they have just got on with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last bits that I wanted to say about this, Jack Pitt Brook of The Athletic, he had a tweet that pretty much sums up how I felt when I saw this. He said, Arsenal's circumstances might technically fit the new postponement criteria, but morally, it's a scandal that a team can duck out of a game with 24 hours notice and one case of COVID. Shows complete contempt for fans and opponents. And the thing that's interesting, you know, look, I'm going to get to why Arsenal is a lot to blame for this, um, but it's also the Premier League. Like, what are you doing? You can't allow this. You're... It's their rule. Arsenal are just manipulating it and exploiting it. But, but it's, it's but technically, Arsenal aren't really doing anything wrong. You put in the ask. Yeah, we got a lot of guys at AFCON. We've got a lot of guys hurt. It's a huge game. We're battling for top four. Let's just see. Oh, well, how about that? It's not really their fault. Here's why I do hold Arsenal in contempt over what happened here. Um, so you know you're entering a period where the Africa Cup of Nations is going on. You know that COVID is running rampant through the world, but specifically England, Europe, everywhere. Um, And so what do they do at the start of January, knowing all this? Knowing they're about to lose players to the Cup of Nations. you got to get rid of a player. They loan multiple players out, JJ. Look, I get it. Arsenal fans will... I'm saying this. They'll roll their eyes. This is a Spurs fan who's being a whiny baby. I get it. But like, let's just take a step back, look at the situation. They loaned out two players right before Africa Cup of Nations started in Balogun and Maitland-Niles. Um, they did this with the Cup of Nations starting, with a COVID spike going on. They did it to manipulate a rule. But this is now from, this isn't me saying this, this is from the Just Arsenal blog. They write, uh, Maitland-Niles has played in a Europa League 
and an FA Cup final, it's not like he couldn't have done a job for the next two weeks. If Eddie and Ketia can start for us, surely so can Balogun. If Roma and Middlesbrough didn't want to wait till the end of the month, you end negotiations because your first priority should be the team. They should not have sent these guys out. And in the days since, they sent out, who was it, Pablo, Pablo Mori as well? A third player has been loaned out by Arsenal? Like, this is where... You have to look at Arsenal. The Premier League ultimately is at fault because they have this rule in that they're allowing teams to exploit. But Arsenal knew what they were doing. This is not smart. This is devious by Arsenal. There's a difference between the two. Yeah, it's a mixture of loosey-goosey rules, rules that weren't clear to everyone, being manipulated by teams, and also, you know, you expect people to to execute the spirit of the law. <laughs> they're not doing no. that. They're taking advantage. And, and they're not, the, by the way, they're not the only one that's doing it. I was so excited for that game. A lot of people were. Imagine people who travel from Wales well, that's and the Scotland thing is people and who, Ireland and wherever. I mean, this is. I mean, look, if you are one of those people, North London Derby, and in a, in a, in a big one at that, as these teams are battling for Champions League, you know, that's a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Like, to have it called, that's tough to stomach to have it called off for a reason like that because the Premier League's got to fix this because it's opened a door that cannot be al- other teams cannot be allowed to walk through this. Yeah. Injuries and, and international duty and cannot se- be a reason to cancel going matches. To go, the season's going to go on until June. They've, they've got to get on top of this. I'll tell you what. Let's take a break, JJ. When we come back, we've got a couple other stories from around the globe that we want to get to, including uh, clicks forming at Manchester United. Wow, you don't say. Uh, Africa Cup of Nations, pitch talk. Uh, pitch goalkeeper talk. Uh, a mailbag. Still a lot to do here on Caught Offside. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, we referenced it a little bit earlier, uh, but Gio Reyna not expected back for the U.S. men's next set of qualifiers. Yeah, it's going to be after the international break before he features for Borussia Dortmund again, Mm. uh, according to his manager. And um, yeah, it's, it's a hamstring. That's all we know. He has not played since getting hurt on international duty with the U.S. against El Salvador. That was on September 2nd. Yeah. It's mid-January. I know. That's that's an awful long time. So that it must have been a significant hamstring tear problem issue. Yeah. Um, we're not doctors. We don't know. I am, as a matter of fact. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. Doc- <laughs> really? Yeah. I'll take that as a compliment. Doctor of nonsense. Oh, okay. Yeah, see what I did Compliment there. rescinded. <laughs> um, so I don't know, but it's it's such a long layoff. He is he is 19. I think Marco Rose talked about how he needs to get back in because he's the rhythms of the game. He's missed so much time. So, look, thankfully, it's a time where we do have options, um, but he's it's, it's, it's unfortunate for him. And no, you just want this team to build chemistry and but, and well, selfishly like this was look world cup qualifying has been enjoyable and fun even though some of the games have been not great for the US but like it, it has been fun but like selfishly i just we've been waiting for this and i kind of just want to watch Pulisic, you're, McKinney you're, and Gio Reyna I, like i just want to watch them play together and, I, and develop something special moving forward this is the core sure but there we we also admitted that of all these great players we have together, the idea that we will see them together I regularly know. is ju- with the calendar the way it is right now, with the amount of football that these guys play, it's not, it's not reasonable. You hope you have them for the tournament. Well, yeah, let's qualify first, then we'll talk about. All right, that. you should right. buzz me. You should yeah. zap me. Uh, by the way, he doesn't. I'm going to bring this up right now. Andrew has locked me out of the hotkeys. Mm-hmm. 
He won't let me use the hockey's guy. The wonderful drops that we have, because he thinks I would be too liberal with my use of them. That's not true. I've got a, We're in a different studio. The setup is complicated. I've got. We're kind of borrowing the studio that like are used for Nick's broadcasts. I don't want to. I don't want to touch anything. Like in our old studio at the old cutoff side towers, we had scarves up around the whole room. We had a picture of Sam Allardyce drinking beer out of a wine glass or <laughs> wine out of a beer glass. That was our room. We could do anything in there. Yeah. It was like ancient Rome. This is not. This is not our room. We've got to be professional in here. And I, quite frankly, don't trust you. I don't want to start pushing buttons here that give you access. And so I'd rather just play it safe. Um, let's see. We continue, JJ. Manchester United, the, the morale boost, just it just ain't coming. We keep on waiting. They throw away a two-goal lead against Aston Villa to draw 2-2. But the first half was one of their better performances under under Ranić. And when they went 2-0 up, although Villa were better in the second half, United still went 2-0 up. And I thought that was it. But it wasn't. Uh, no. Gerard had obviously delivered a halftime salvo, a, a speech for the ages. Because well, if he did, I mean, it, the, the goal didn't come to the 77th and then the 81st. True, but they were much improved in the second half. Villa, they were much better, even despite the fact they considered the, uh, they conceded the second to Bruno Fernandes, and then the Coutinho show started, which was as good a, a good a re, as good a reintroduction to to football in England as he could have hoped for. Just amazing. It's visually, it's. Uh, I don't mean this as a slight against Aston Villa. It's just a little. I don't know. It's jarring. It's kind of odd. Yeah, seeing him there, like I, it's. I don't know. The shirt looked pretty good in him, I thought. It certainly did. Yeah. But, like... It's it, it's weird. Just be- wouldn't have expected it. Yeah, because Villa, for the most time we've been doing this podcast, have been either relegation fodder, relegated, not in the Premier League, or just back up trying to establish themselves. So they've never been, you know, the Villa of Martin O'Neill where they were finishing fifth and sixth. So the idea that a big player that we know of going to them and we see him in that jersey, it is a jarring view. But you'll get over it, Andrew. You'll get used to it. Oh, of course. And I do wonder, like, if you're Aston Villa, you know, I mean, it's great right now. Like, this looks great. It's just, I guess we'll see what it does for them. Well, we'll see what it does for how they set the team up. Who loses out here? Uh, Bundia, Ings, Watkins, Coutinho. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, but they're, honestly. they're not going to keep, everyone, one of those players is not going to start. You know, I just don't see that under Gerrard. Someone's going to lose out. I, I suspect it'll be Danny Ings. Okay. I mean, but but the others that you mentioned there, like, I'd sign up for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bundia and Coutinho on the same side? Don't know. We'll have to see. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, I kind of I kind of like it. I don't know. I don't want to fall into that trap. We, we talked earlier in with the Everton conversation with Greg O'Keefe about, you know, like he mentioned the Hamas Rodriguez signing, you know, player with a big name on his way down. That's yeah. not what Everton should be doing. That's the only reason I say about Villa and, and Coutinho. I feel like there are parallels that could be made between those right. two things. So I don't want to just get sucked in by that by a name in lights. Philip Coutinho is at Aston Villa. Like that's that's easy. You know, but like long term are we going to be talking a year and a half from now or so about you know a Hamas Rodriguez like situation? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But like for now, I'll, I'm get, I'm kind of getting sucked in, and the idea of that group up front is is imposing. So uh, it could be fun. Could we see this? Here's the scenario: a classic Premier League scenario plays out. Coutinho does very well at Aston Villa, right? And he turns thirty, and towards the middle of that 
time there's a there's huge transfer rumours that someone else wants him and there's a kind of a little bit of a tug of war and then he commits and he uses the classic phrase the club have so, shown so much faith in me I had to repay it and then his form falls off a cliff for the next two years and they can't wait to get rid of him I know things are different players develop you know they were very young but I sometimes I sometimes look at I'm not trying to pour salt on any wounds, but I sometimes look at that Liverpool team and I'm just like, how did they not? How did they not win a title? How do you mean? Well, I just look at that squad. I mean, what was it? Coutinho? Oh, the 13-14 th- the team. Yeah, I just sometimes think I just, I'm just, I just, they I was seeing the, like... Andrew, we know how they didn't win it. It was there, it was in their grasp. Are we really going to go over this? It's important. You know, it was right there. It was it was within touching distance, and they did not uh, execute. We'll put it that way. Oh, okay. And the current manager, Aston Villa, had a mistake that... Or, they just had such great players there. Yeah, but you know, Liverpool got infinitely better when they got rid of Coutinho, when they moved him on. Like, Klopp's plan They really, were smart with how that money was used, certainly. 100%. They bought in two players, Alisson and, and Virgil van Dijk, which transformed the club. Mm. And... Uh, the front three wouldn't be as fluid and as good if you were trying to, you know, don't pu- get me push wrong. Coutinho in somewhere. Coutinho wouldn't work in that in that system that was developed from uh, the second half of seventeen eighteen onwards. No, it worked out. Like in the end, for Liverpool, there was a happy ending. I'm just talking about that one individual season. I'm I just look at them and I just feel like that team was good enough. Like that team probably should have had a title, but they didn't. Raheem Sterling, Daniel Sturridge, yeah. Suarez, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, and Gerrard's still, but, still but, really good. Gerrard, what are you doing to me? the the bottom wa- the The bottom line with that team wasn't the attack. It was when you went back the field. You had you know skirt let center back. Mm-hmm. You had uh, was Lovren there then? Uh, no, he wasn't there. He was bought. He was bought season after. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't Lovren. It was we had a, we had a goalkeeper. You know who? I mean. I'm blanking on his... I can't believe Mignolet. Mignolet there. We had just had a a dysfunctional back line. Mm. And you're not going to win. I had mentioned Manchester United, JJ. There was some talk about cliques forming within the the club of players who speak certain languages hanging out with those players. And Fred came out. I believe he called it fake news. Um, Which is... It's great that that phrase is making a comeback. (laughs) We've we've missed that phrase. Uh, Look, I, I, I sort of think that that's... I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe there is something to it. It feels. Why does it have to be? Feels clicks? much to do about. Why nothing? can't people just say they're <laughs> like they're not good? This is a team that isn't you know functioning very well with a manager who isn't really a manager trying to wrangle it all together. <laughs> you know why does it have to be like clicks? This, this guy. Maybe there's a, maybe there's like there's definitely a Portuguese click. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure of that. Uh, but the rest of the side, like, they're just not good. They're, they're short midfielders. Their fullbacks aren't particularly good. Their centre back is having a just a, a collapse in form. Um, you know they've got a, a striker up front who's just a, a, a shiny bauble. A, you know a, a, a me guy, a guy that's all about himself. There's Jaden Sancho who's come in and they don't know what to do with him. They still don't know what to do with him. He's in a funk. They've got younger players in a funk too. Marcus Rashford, you know all these things. Why does there need? There doesn't need to be a click, you know. I wonder if this guy, if Ragnick knew what he was getting into when he took this job. He's lived a lifetime in the last month. Yeah, I, I well, clicks. Martial rift. 
form not the team not doing what he wants. I mean, it's just like well, next time he's asked, would he like to be an interim manager somewhere? He'll probably say no. I would like. No, to, this experience has scarred. I him. would like to continue building clubs from behind. A uh, couple other quick ones before we get to AFCON, JJ. West Ham suffer a, what could be a damaging defeat to Leeds uh, at home brilliant, at the London Stadium. Brilliant game. Um, hat-trick from Jack Harrison. Mm-hmm. And uh, both teams, uh, West Ham had played midweek. I know Moyes complained afterwards, but West Ham had played midweek. They played again. And Leeds, Andrew, fielded just a plethora of teenagers on the bench, ready to go. Um, not looking for you know any dispensations, not looking for any kind of excuses. Uh, Lewis Bate, 19 years old. Uh, Leo Hagelde, 18 years old. Stuart McKinstry, 18 years old. Jack Jenkins, 18. Chris mm. Moore, 18. Noah Kenna, 18. Not to mention that Archie Gray, a 15-year-old, has been on the bench. He was recently for them. You know, you have to give uh, Leeds a lot of credit and... Adam Crafton, friend of this pod, was on BBC Radio 5 Live on the Monday Night Club yesterday, and he said that one of the key things Bielsa does is, Andrew, shock horror, is that they recruit these you know, players, these youth players, in their under-23s, but they also involve them in the first team. So they know how the first team functions. If they're ever required to play, they can come in, and it's not a big issue. Isn't that a crazy thing to how do? How about that? How about that? You know, really, he's really rewriting the rule book, Bielsa. Like, to me, Leeds have been brilliant and they've got, gotten on with things. And if, you know, they've had a, they've taken their lumps, literally. They've got hammered in some games where they've been short through injuries and they've just gotten on with it and they've, they haven't really lent on, on the COVID excuse. Um, Paul Carr had a tweet, JJ, after this. Uh, and he, he says, scored a Premier League hat-trick after playing an MLS. Jack Harrison is now on that list. There are two others he has. Premier League hat-trick, and they had played in MLS. They played in MLS, then went to the Premier League. Clint Dempsey. That's one. Did Landon Landon Donovan never had a hat-trick at Everton? No. Um, Clint Dempsey. Brian McBride. No. A lot of people guessed that. Go on, then. It was a player. I'll give you a hint first. It's a player who, while he was in MLS... You were not fond of his work. You thought it seemed like you kind of thought he was just going through the motions. It was a Premier League guy, went to MLS, came back to the Premier League. Oh. Uh Jermaine Defoe. That's right. That's right. And then Paul does say anyone else. Uh so it seemed like he wasn't sure. So I, I've been scrolling through the mentions to see if there were any others, but no one has said another one. So it might just be those three. Wow. I, I will for it's forever in my mind watching Jermaine Defoe play for Toronto. Like and he got off to this blistering start, mm-hmm. and then just kind of did nothing, just let it drift away. wasn't happy, and he got back to Sunderland, wasn't it? Yeah, he was part of. Uh, he scored a bunch of goals, and they kept them up. That's right. Uh, let's see, JJ Real Madrid. They take the Spanish Supercopa back to Spain with them. Well, they <laughs> weren't in Spain; they were in Saudi Arabia. They won it, and they took it with them back on the plane to Spain. That uh, that that phraseology just kind of left me befuddled for a second. <laughs> they beat Athletic Bilbao in the final. Luka Modric scoring a goal, two um, 0 was your final. Congrats to them. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, let's see, Afcon, JJ. So here we go. There's a there's a couple things that I wanted to mention. First, Ghana are out. 
Ghana are out of this tournament thanks to a late goal from uh, Ahmed Mogni of Comoros. Just amazing. I'm going to say something right now. No, I know, and I'm going to join you in it so you're not left dangling out there like an like ignorant fool. We're going to hold hands and we're going to jump together. We're going over this cliff together, my friends. One of the nice things about some international tournaments is that you, you learn things. Yeah. That's important. I'm not even saying that to be flippant or sarcastic or anything, honestly. I you genuinely feel that yeah, way. This summer you found all uh, out all about Italy. Imagine that. It's in the shape of a boot. Today, you know what I learned? What? That there's a country called Comoros. I did not know until they beat Ghana today to knock Ghana out of this tournament that Comoros was a country. Uh, that's ignorant. Yeah. Uh, I acknowledge that. But I say it not to in any way belittle them. I say it to kind of lend credence to the magnitude of this upset. It's enormous. They were debutants. Uh, they are ranked 132nd in the world. And they now have a chance to reach the knockout stages as one of four best-ranked third-place sides, uh, even though the Colacanths lost their first two games in Cameroon. That's according to the BBC. They have less than a million inhabitants. It's more famous for its history of political coups than its football and had only won its first Nations Cup or World Cup qualifier in 2016 at the 20th attempt. Incredible. Now, they are following a blueprint that, you know, other countries have followed, but none more so than my own beloved Republic of Ireland. This, uh, again, according to the BBC, this is a squad bolstered by members of the diaspora, with many playing their trade in the lower leagues in France. Um, and they lost just once to achieve their first qualification. And now they've done this. It's amazing. It's what a story. It's It's truly... And like... In terms of African powerhouses, maybe not over the last few years, but certainly in the last 10, 15 years, Ghana have been definitely just huge. And for this, this is England versus Iceland, Euro 2016. Mm -hmm. That's the territory we're in here with this result. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Um, speaking of upsets at this tournament, Algeria, JJ, they are up against it now after getting stunned by Equatorial Guinea. Uh, and once again, you know, we sat here last week and talked about AFCON and Algeria getting off to the, the bad start, but it didn't sound like Algeria necessarily played poorly. They just didn't score. And it sounds like that happened to them again. I'll be curious when this tournament is over to see how many shots Algeria will have attempted without scoring. I mean, there was, from watching the highlights, there was a lot of really good defending, a lot of lo uh, last gasp kind of stuff. Um <sighs> But but at the same time, you know, they, I can't get over a team with this attacking talent hasn't you know didn't score today. Like, I, it's, it's, I, I would agree. it's inexplicable to me. Yeah, and they're uh, they are up against it now. Um, JJ Sierra Leone get a stunning equalizer in stoppage time on an on a horrifying goalkeeping error from Ivory Coast, uh, and it ends one one. Now. Okay. No, 2-2, two, two, wasn't it? Or, yeah, I'm sorry, 2-2. Two, two. It yeah. was 2-2. Two, two. Right, so me and you have the equaliser. Look, let's just agree for for one thing. It was a horrifying way to give up the three points, mm -hmm. right, for the Ivory Coast. The ball is running out over the touchline to the right of the goal, and the goalkeeper is trying to stop it from doing that, get his hands on it, dive on it, and make a play. He dives on it. He gets his hands and he whacks his his knee and shin into the ground. The pitch, and let's not argue this point either, 
is a disaster. It's a mess. The pitch gives way beneath him, causing him to flip over almost on his head. Not almost, on his head. He then relinquishes possession of the ball. The ball is retrieved by the Sierra Leone players and it ends up in the back of the net. You think that this is entirely on the goalkeeper. 100%. You don't see any pitchel interference. You're... How can I say this in a way that is appropriate on a Disney vehicle, which we are? No, we're not. We're an hour vehicle. Your affection, we'll go with affection, for grass, <laughs> for pitch, for turf. For knowing. No- it, it, you've gone too far. No. You, you, you're you no, lost. My- All right? You make it sound like the earth opened up beneath him. His knee touched the core of the planet. I mean, give me a break. Andrew, did you see... This, how deep his knee goes into the ground. Did you see it's it? It's a divot. He he puts he goes to grab the ball. It's not a divot. He goes, he goes into the ground knee first. It creates oh. a divot. He flips no, over himself no, I'm not, and drops no, the ball. God, no, come on. It's an embarrassing goalkeeping you, error. To let him off the hook and in some way insinuate that this is because of a poor pitch, it's wrong. It's offensive to all goalkeepers out there who are trying to do the right things. I feel bad for this guy. I'm not trying to pile on him. It's his fault. Even if it was the pitch, there's no reason for him to drop the ball. Andrew, he, fell he was over. flipped over. Just hold on to the ball. You're making it out like it was a tiny little divot, and, and he like Keystone Cop style stepped into it. You make it sound it, like, like his leg is still stuck in the ground. <laughs> it, his knee. That they needed the jaws of life to bring him out. I mean, give me a break. You can see it. I have a screen grab. His knee goes so deep into the turf, it causes him to flip over on his head, releasing the ball. What are you talking about? Come on. Like, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And yeah, yeah, I have my hands in the soil. I understand the dirt. I'm not, I'm not a... You have a problem. You need help. <laughs> I don't. I just... This is some sort of, like, some sort of filiac. Uh, there must be a term for this. No, it doesn't get me... It doesn't get me aroused. <laughs> I, come on. I like talking about different surfaces because, I don't know. Because it gets you around. He <laughs> doesn't. Um, although I did play on a frozen surface. Oh, tell me every detail. On on a Saturday, on Sunday morning. Frozen surface. Twenty-two guys just kicking a ball around. The weather here lately in twelve degrees. <laughs> the weather here has been a problem lately. It is it's the coldest I, I I've ever played ball. Unbelievable. Is, it, is that right? It has to be. It has to be. Yeah, it was. Um, it was good for uh, a new local club, SV Yellowhook. Of Bay Ridge. That's who you play for now. No, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm training with them. I haven't, oh. I haven't switched yet. But they're they're doing uh, winter trainings, so I uh, I play with them. How did you get mixed into this? It's it's a it's a tangled web of soccer in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Me and all the rest of the guys who love ter- talk. We actually we didn't even play. We just turned up and we all brought soil samples and we compared them. And really, we're a community that no one wants to talk about. So we found each other on um, Turf FC on sexysoil.org. <laughs> that would be a .org. Uh, let's see. So, so yeah, two-two um, in a stunning result for the Ivory Coast as they are unable, like you said, to get the three points there. Uh, some scary news, JJ, from the tournament actually regarding Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. He was released from the Gabon squad back to Arsenal after a medical exam revealed heart lesions. Uh, the same. Was true for Aubameyang's uh, Gabon teammate Mario Lamina. Uh, so, like, like I said months ago on the pod, yeah, the top class athletes are not immune to getting these these lesions. But I've heard about them on the lungs. There was the Stade Francais rugby players. There was Joshua Kimmich. Um, 
you know, lesions or... Yeah, I think that was the term they used. Lesions, yeah. <clears throat> On the heart, I had not heard of. That is... You don't want lesions anywhere. No. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. But, uh, you know, that is absolutely frightening. And um, wish him the best. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, finally, before we get to the mailbag and close this thing out, JJ, Kellen Acosta, big trade in MLS, traded from Colorado to LAFC. It's an important move, certainly for LAFC, as he'll be the centerpiece, I would think. I mean, we'll see what's going to happen with Carlos Vela, but uh, it, it's massively important. Um yeah, and it's great, you know, that he joins the club in a state of disappointment at being there. <laughs> so there, there was controversy over this. Uh, was there ever? I'm reading from The Athletic. They say there's conflicting information over whether Europe was an option for Acosta. A source said that the Rapids haven't received a transfer offer from a European club for Acosta since English Championship side Reading bid $3.5 million for him shortly before he re-upped with Colorado in January of 2019. The Rapids rejected the move as they would have had to split the fee 50-50 with Dallas, which retained half of the rights to a foreign transfer for Acosta through the summer of 2020. Acosta disputed that account on Friday tweeting that the club had an offer on the table for him from a foreign club, but opted to trade him instead. Acosta went to Twitter, JJ. He said, this narrative is sad. Colorado pushed me out. They had an offer for me on the table from abroad, an ongoing interest, and opted to trade me. Um, the Athletic then again said, reached after Acosta's tweet, a rapid spokesperson told The Athletic that, quote, no offer from a foreign club was on the table at the time the trade was agreed between the two clubs. Over three hours later, we did receive an email from a club in Europe asking for a one-year free loan with an option to buy. Hmm. This is me talking now, not The Athletic. Right. Some coincidences feel just a bit too coincidental. Yeah. And so I kind of feel bad for Kellen Acosta because he doesn't really have a say in this matter. No. He wants to go to Europe. I don't know. I can't help but wonder that, like, they just didn't. It was three hours. The trade happened. And then right after, like right after, not a day later, not two days later, a couple hours later, then the, the offer came in. Like they deliberately gave the people who wanted to make contact the wrong email address. Reportedly. So. Here's here's why there would be a conspiracy theory here to even talk about. The idea is that uh, Colorado received over well over a million in compensation uh, for Acosta, whereas this reported deal from a European club uh, was going to be a loan with an option to buy, and so not necessarily. I mean, you don't know, but probably not as lucrative of what as what they wound up getting from LAFC, sure. and so they took the money and kind of said. You know, again, this is my my hypothesis, and sort of said, Kellen's European dreams be damned. We want the money, and the and the worst thing about it was that you know Acosta is going through this very real disappointment, which should I sh I really shouldn't make fun of it because, you know, he's a professional. His time is limited. He's, he's twenty six. Yeah, so you know, he, you kind of have to, you have to take your opportunities to go when they present themselves. And the fact is that he couldn't, but it doesn't matter now because he has to act all hyped about going to LAFC through his very visible upset. So on his Twitter, right, you know, he has this back and forth over, you know, saying about his disappointment and replying to tweets. And then he goes, regardless of the matter, I enjoyed my time in CEO in Colorado and was with a great group of players and staff. We achieved things most wouldn't believe. Wishing them the best moving forward. I'm excited for my next adventure. 
You know, because he's got to do that. And then he retweets the the LAFC tweet welcoming, welcoming him, you know, the whole thing. And then he has to tweet again to the LAFC fans. I'm excited for the next chapter. I'll give everything I have for the black and gold. I, I'm not questioning his professionalism, but it's just... I'm sure he's hurt. Oh, he's hurt. He's definitely I, I hurt. I feel bad for him. Otherwise, he wouldn't go about his biz- replying to any of this in a public forum. And I really like him, and I like his game. He had a great gold cup. Um, you know, he's an important piece for this U.S. side, and, and you know, I'm sure he wants to test himself in a different league in Europe. Um, and so that's, like I that's said, a tough and, pill to swallow. And that window is closing. It may have closed. That's that's tough. But but like you said, he he's a stand-up guy. He is a professional, and, and I, think he'll do, I think he'll do great things at LAFC. I think highly of him. Uh, but I feel for him. When, reading this and the way it played out, three hours later, the transfer, the, the offer came in. Okay. It feels like one of those things where like they said, okay, we're about to complete a trade. No one check your emails. Yeah. It's, <laughs> a shame. it's a shame he couldn't operate with the same agency that players in England seem to in this case. They would not accept that. You're yeah. going to Los Angeles. No, I'm not. Watch how I force through what I want. Right. Kellen Acosta, I'm sure his first... Get me Mino Raiola on the phone right now. Uh, let's see. We have a mailbag here, JJ. I love this mailbag. Before we start the mailbag, oh. did you know how easy it is to give us a five-star rating on Spotify? It's unbelievable. So Spotify have added in ratings. You go to our Caught Offside podcast page on Spotify with a list of all our episodes. And right at the top, you can see a little stars thing. You hit that. You hit five stars. Boom, you're done. You don't even have to leave a comment. Just five stars. Wow. Bish, bash, bosh. The animals, of course, on Reddit were the first ones over there. One guy said, you can't believe how quickly I hit that five star. Oh, that's that's awesome. So I want Good people to do that. Do it right now. Uh, Caughtoffsidepod at gmail.com is the email. At Pod, the Twitter. ESPN on Instagram. Follow us all there. Leave an iTunes review as well. Five stars, please. Thanks. Danny in Charleston. You guys talk a lot about the best type of goal. After Oxlade Chamberlain's goal at the weekend, where does the diving header rank in your most beautiful goals? Mm. Have you a favorite diving header? I have. Uh, I'll. I'll give you my. I sure do. Yeah, he, he asked the right podcast that question. <laughs> yes, we. Of course, w- we do. Of course, we do. I have two that spring to mind. Uh, one is Henrik Larsson against Bulgaria for Sweden in the. 2004 European Championships. Just a beautiful, a beautiful cross. An amazing diving header. And uh, my other one happened in this fair region, Andrew, at the Old Giant Stadium, the World Cup quarterfinal between Ger- uh, Germany and Bulgaria. Uh, Jordan Lechkov put his big baldy head onto a soccer ball that flew into the net in the Netherlands. Diving header. Wonderful. Absolutely beautiful. What a sight. Uh, I had a couple as well. Uh, first one, I actually have audio of these uh, from the just somewhat recently, the 2014 World Cup. You remember Robin Van Persie's? Oh, I do. It was a Puskas finalist. I don't think it won. It was it was a unique diving header because he wasn't diving to get on. He was diving to get onto it, but it was, it was like a swan dive. But it was coming over his shoulder. Uh, it was. You're it was, right. It was unique. It, Here's what it sounded like. This was John Champion on the call. He's onside this time. We got. We'll have to tweet it out so people can see it because uh, it's. I'm a, sure they remember. It's a very unique 
diving header. I think this was that was fairly new in like the meme world in the meme situation online. But I, I feel like I remember seeing memes of him like diving. Like people and, would freeze that image and like put him diving into different things. Oh it was yeah, like such a dramatic dive. Oh, that definitely happened. Yeah. And then my other one is is kind of a selfish one, but back in the 2002 World Cup, USA, Portugal. McBride's in the box. A hard cross. McBride scores. It's three zero United States. The Fleming Portugal. Oh, never Love was it. a big fat square Irish head. Better suited than the, on the shoulders of Brian McBride for headers. He was ball head, unbelievable. It was a perfect symphony. So, his first part of the question: among the great kinds of goals, where does a diving header rank? Oh, it's got to be up there. It can yeah. be absolutely spectacular. Um, just the, the floating through the air. Right. To no, you get it wrong, but you rarely see it go wrong. It's a good call by Danny. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Uh, Basin Hamden, Ward Prowse goal, a definite Pushkas contender. There are some players, guys, who anyone who listens to the, this podcast will know. There are some players that Andrew gets very excited about. He's, Charlie Austin, uh, guys like that. Just he falls in love with them, and Ward Prowse is one of he's those. He's one. He's one of my people. Yeah, I don't think he gets a Pushkas because no, it was tremendous, but, but it's. Long range free kick with movement on it, with a lot, with a bit of swaz on it, doesn't generally get Puskas nominations. No, but it's it was so him, like the predictability. Like it's now at a point. It's like when Steph Curry lines up an open three, like that's James Ward Prowse standing over a free kick. I, a, I feel the same way. And that's a lot further out for it to be. Usually, I thought it was beyond. right. That was like Steph pulling up from the logo. Yeah. Incredible, but like you still, if you're playing against him, you cringe as it's happening. You can just sense it. Like Ward Prowse has perfected this. Um, by the way, it mentioned as a Puskas contender, we should say, uh, <laughs> I don't want to hear anymore that Tottenham don't win trophies because they got back to back Puskas awards. That's something. And I'm going to take it <laughs> and put it in I'm the trophy, it. <laughs> trophy cabinet. Lamella won for the Rabona against Arsenal. Figures it would come in a game that they lost, but this was after uh, Sun had won for the goal against Burnley the year before. That's right. Uh, Newman. Hello, Newman. Uh, will 2022 bring any merch for the animals? Hashtag feed the animals. I, I'm going to say this one more time, and I mean this. If it kills me. If it kills me, you will have Andrew's face across your chest on a T-shirt. That's no. what our shirt would be? Oh. Uh, I'm going to begin simple. Just your head and written around it, oh, indeed. No, what is it? No, yeah, it's oh, indeed. No, indeed it will be, oh, indeed it will be a bright, what's the, what's your phrase? Oh, indeed, it's going to be a bright future. Oh, it is a bright future. That's it. Oh, it is a bright future. That, just round your face looking I, despondent. I will not allow you the image rights. <laughs> I will do it. Imagine. Imagine thousands of My our listeners. My face is trademarked. Across you will, this. You're going to owe me a, quite a bit. Your, I'll take you to court. Your face across this great nation. I will sell that. That's the first one, Newman. That's what what's going to happen. And finally, to wrap it all up, uh, Javier Perez, thoughts on Mexico's new attempt to stomp out the bad chant. Which we know what that is, so there's no need to go into it. Uh, I got this from the 18, who had a piece on what the latest FMF four-pillar approach to this is. Um, Starting with requiring fans to register online to obtain a QR code that will be required along with an ID to enter stadiums, which seems 
pretty draconian. Once at a match, the FMF said stadiums will promote a healthy fan experience. Third, security at matches will be better trained to identify and remove anyone who engages in any act of discrimination, including the chant. Finally, and here's the big one, anyone who is removed for a discriminatory act will be handed a five-year ban from attending national team matches. What do we think? It's, go ahead, try. Try everything. I, 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 It's just amazing to me as you're reading through that, you know, you need a QR code. Uh, like, all because they can't help themselves from saying this. Yeah. It's madness. It is madness. Like, the, the, the steps that now everyone has to go through because they've got to say it. Yeah. I'll never understand it. Uh, and I don't get it. I, I can't even believe that this is still a thing uh, with all the attempts to root this out. I mean, like I said, it's tr- keep trying, try everything. But I like if it hasn't worked yet, they've played games behind closed doors. Like, but also think of someone who's um, from a poorer background who may not have ready access to the internet, who's going to have to jump through hoops now to get registered to go and see this team play again because some jack wagons won't stop saying that word at free kicks and kickouts. It's human beings are will ruin anything. Oh my god. Any joy, anything can be destroyed. I mean QR codes and IDs to enter stadiums is Anyway. And that's the mailbag. You do a nice job, JJ, when you set up the mailbag of really ending on the most serious down note. We, Where do you learn these things? We're speaking. Not from me. No, no, no. <laughs> like, why do you think when we do red card man of the match, you start with the red card, you finish with the man of the match? Because you want people happy and smiling as they leave. Because you are this kind of broadcasting legend, aren't you? You know, you're the Lauren. I like to think of myself. You're the that Lauren way. Michaels of this podcast, and I am just trying to ruin the show. I am Chris Catan. Who was Chris Catan? Exactly. Don't. If I'm Lauren Michaels. He was a guy who used to be on SNL. I'm Corky Romano is who he. Yeah. I'm Artie Lang, basically bumbling onto your HBO show, getting it shut down because I don't follow the rules. But that's what we've set up here. How did you say Charleston before? Charleston. That's not what you said. Well, sometimes I get it mixed up with Charlestown. Yeah, Ca- that's, that's, that's kind of what. All you right, did. I got it wrong. Got it wrong. All right, just like to keep you in check. Yeah. What a fun show this was. Our thanks to Greg O'Keefe uh, for going deep on the Everton situation. We'll see what they do. And we'll see what they do. And thanks to the Ivorian Keeper for going deep into the turf. To the center of the earth. Hey, to you I say... Take you later, fun boy. I'll see you. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 